Hey folks, this is Nat Kendall Taylor. I'm the CEO of the Frameworks Institute, and you're listening to our podcast, Frames of Mind. When it comes to social issues, experts say one thing, the public hears another. We use social science and the science of framing to bridge that gap. You'll hear a member of our staff, or in some cases, a few very special guests chat about social science and social issues all through the lens of framing, exploring how it can shape our understanding of the world, or at the very least, how we talk about it. Um, My name is Jack Shonkoff. I'm a professor of child health and development at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and the Graduate School of Education and professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, and I direct the Center on the Developing Child at Harvard University. I'm a trained, I'm a pediatrician by training, and my work is focused on early life influences on learning, behavior, and health. So what I want to do is take a chance on using this opportunity to give you a deeper understanding of what the term toxic stress means. It's been mentioned a great deal. Um, I'm going to give you a deeper understanding of that. And my testimony is based on strong scientific consensus from decades of scientific research. This is not about a single study, but it's the consensus of the scientific community. Sudden forcible separation of children from their parents is deeply traumatic for both the child and the parent. But above and beyond the distress we see on the outside, this triggers a massive biological stress response inside the child, which remains activated until the parent returns and provides some sense of comfort. Without exaggeration, there are literally thousands of studies that have converged on the following two simple, basic, core scientific concepts. Number one, a strong foundation for healthy development in young children requires a stable, responsive, and supportive relationship with at least one parent or primary caregiver. And the second concept is that high and persistent levels of stress activation, which is known as toxic stress, can disrupt the architecture of the developing brain and other biological systems, which I will say a little bit about in a moment, with serious negative impacts on learning, behavior, and lifelong physical and mental health, not just mental health. So early experiences are literally built into our brains and our bodies from the beginning. Stable and responsive relationships promote healthy brain development. They establish well-functioning immune and metabolic systems and cardiovascular systems, and they strengthen the building blocks of resilience. If these relationships are disrupted, young children are hit by the double whammy of a brain that is deprived of the positive stimulation it needs and is assaulted by a stress response that disrupts its developing circuits. When any of us feels threatened, our body's stress responses are activated. Heart rate and blood pressure go up. Stress hormone levels are elevated. Blood sugar rises. And inflammatory responses are mobilized. This is the fight or flight response. Unlike positive or tolerable stress, which can build resilience, excessive, prolonged toxic stress has lifelong consequences. So what I want to do is conclude by sharing with you how these scientific principles that I've just described provide a powerful framework for understanding the damage caused by the current family separation policy. All children who were abruptly separated from familiar caregivers at the border experienced overwhelming stress. Will some survive without significant problems? The answer is yes. Will will many be seriously impaired for the rest of their lives? The answer again is yes. 
The biology of adversity suggests three factors that influence who is at greatest risk. The first is age. Younger children are the most vulnerable because their brain circuitry and other biological systems are relatively underdeveloped, and they are the most dependent on adult caregivers. The second is previous harm from adversity. Many people have alluded to this. The pileup of stress on children who are already compromised shifts the odds against them even further. Intentionally withholding the most powerful healing intervention we could possibly offer, the care of, the, the care of their parents when children are in danger goes against everything that science tells us, everything. The third reason for variation in outcomes is the duration of separation, and that's the part that I want to leave you with. Toxic stress is a ticking clock, and prolonged separation inflicts increasingly greater harm as each week goes by. From a scientific perspective, the initial separation and the lack of rapid unification are both highly indefensible. Forcibly separating children from their parents is like setting a house on fire, and prolonging that separation is like blocking the first responders from doing their job. Thank you very much for that. Thank you very much, Doctor. On February 7th of this year, the House Committee on Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations held a hearing to investigate the family separation policy implemented at the U.S.-Mexico border. Dr. Jack Shankoff, director of the Center on the Developing Child at Harvard University, sat before the committee to address the trauma that forcible separation can cause children, as well as the long-term effects of toxic stress that can continue well into adulthood. The taxonomy of stress comes out of the framework's long-standing relationship with the center and partners like the MacArthur Foundation and our shared goal to translate the science of brain development. Over the course of our 20-year history, the core story of early childhood development is one piece of work that we consistently come back to. It began as a way to talk about brain science and its relationship to early development and learning and has now become a way to engage the public about systems like foster care, the importance of safe, stable housing, hunger, poverty, public structures like parks, and as you heard, just immigration policies. In this episode of Frames of Mind, how does understanding brain development lead to policy change? We look back at the research, the partnerships, and the impact of framing ECD. Framework staff Jennifer Nichols and Daniel Busso kick us off, and later Nat Kendall-Taylor sits down with scholars Judy Cameron and Pat Levitt, who were there from the beginning. All right, if you all could introduce yourselves, please. My name is Jennifer Nichols, and I'm the Director of Research Interpretation and Application at Frameworks. I work with a team that takes our research findings and helps advocates and experts and researchers, anyone who's communicating about a social issue, to use those research findings in their own communications. So we do a lot of outreach, working people through what the research says and how to use it, and we do that through a lot of different communications channels. So we write creative briefs, for example, and online toolkits that anybody can use and find on our website. But we also do a lot of workshops, uh, conference, panel sessions, different kinds of training opportunities, webinars, things like that. Hi, my name is Dan Busso. I'm a senior researcher and manager of quantitative research at Frameworks. And on the research team, we produce original communications research that translates different social and scientific issues for the public. Um, so in addition to early childhood, we work on a whole range of different issues from health to economic inequality um, to, to poverty and to homelessness uh, all, all across the, the range. I chose you two to have this conversation about early childhood development because 
I feel like you both on staff are sort of the experts on researching about it, talking about it, and also training advocates in this area of work. Um, so Dan, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background for coming to Frameworks and just sort of how your experience through ECD has been really helpful at your time here? Sure. Um, so I started my career as a secondary school educator in the UK. So that means middle school through high school. Um, and then I went to graduate school to do a doctorate in psychology. So my research focused on the ways in which different types of relationship experiences early in life can shape the, the developing brain and other biological systems um, and ultimately affect mental health throughout childhood and adulthood. Um, and so not just looking at typical development and how relationships influence uh, all of us across our lives, but also atypical development. So how different adverse early experiences, so things like poverty, neglect, um, exposure to abuse, how those experiences uh, violate in some way children's basic ex expectations about what healthy caregiver relationships should look like. Um, and I became really interested in those questions through an applied lens. So I was interested in how what we know from the developmental science about how kids develop and the kinds of things they need can help inform different types of um, programmatic and policy changes that can help support young people and families. And so Jen, ECD is a big part of your portfolio here. It is. Yeah. No. Uh, when I came to Frameworks, I think everything I knew about early childhood development was basically a matter of my once having been a child myself and having gone through it. So it's been an enormous learning curve for me to <laughs> learn more about early childhood development. Uh, my background is in language and literature. So I've spent my life studying words and how words shape our reality and how language uh, shapes our, our culture and vice versa. And I took that work, which was really focused, it was focused more on things like gender disparities, class disparities, looking at immigration and immigration narratives. So storytelling, storytelling among different disempowered populations at different points in American history. And uh, when I left academia, I moved into the labor movement and I took some of what I'd studied and applied that to running campaigns. So I've worked on a lot of advocacy issues and activist issues, um, doing grassroots mobilization and so on since I left, since I left uh, academia. I've done labor work, uh, gender related work, higher education policy, things like that. So I brought all of that campaign experience and that experience thinking, talking, writing about language and how it works to shape our understanding of the world with me to frameworks. But what I didn't have was the early childhood development piece. So since coming here, I've just learned an enormous amount about early childhood development, what those processes look like, how that affects our, uh, our lifelong outcomes. So it's been an interesting experience for me, kind of putting all those things together, language and advocacy and, and an issue area that I was really unfamiliar with before now. Um, so later in this podcast, we're going to hear more about how our ECD work sort of developed um, from a science translation perspective. But Dan, you worked with the Harvard Center on the Developing Child. Yeah, I, I worked with them throughout graduate school, or rather I was just kind of, I, I attached myself to them because I thought they were doing really interesting and in, innovative work. Um, so I was there, I had a fellowship with them through graduate school and um, did, did other kinds of work with them. But I remember one experience early on when I was in graduate school and I heard a, a presentation by Jack Shonkoff, who was the, the head of the center. And he said this phrase, which is this, that science doesn't speak for itself. And by that, he meant that 
it isn't enough just to collect enough data and evidence and reams of peer-reviewed journal articles and kind of expect that we can give it to someone that has decision-making power, like a policymaker, and for them to have some kind of epiphany and act on it in the way that we'd like. Um, but rather, we have to be very intentional about framing and tr translating that research so that it has the kind of impact and effect that we, we want it to have. Um, and so that, that idea, I think, really stuck with me throughout my time in graduate school. And so I heard about the work that the frameworks had done with uh, the Harvard Center over a period of 15 years uh, and the National Scientific Council on the, on the, on the developing child. Um, and I became really fascinated by this, this idea of science translation. And so that's ultimately what drew me to frameworks and to doing the kind of work that I'm doing here. All right, so our work tends to fall into two camps. We are framing or solving for a social justice issue like affordable housing or community development or homelessness. And then we're also translating a particular science um, to help solve a social issue. So you just mentioned science translation. Can you get in a little bit about what that means exactly? Well, I think science translation in particular involves taking a body of scientific evidence and figuring out what it is that we actually want to be able to say. Um, and that's often not as straightforward as it might sound. So scientists typically are so steeped in their work that it can be difficult sometimes to figure out what is essential for the public to understand and what is more peripheral. Um, and so typically at the start of a project, we go through a long process of figuring out what it is actually that we would want the public to know about your issue. So in this case, about um, early childhood. Um, and through the process of, of science translation and framing research that, that we conduct, um, we are able to both distill that body of expert knowledge into, into a core set of principles and then figure out um, through a process of testing and refining different frames, figuring out what are the best ways of communicating that information in order to achieve a certain set of outcomes of interest. And so why do you think science translation is a necessary strategy for policy change? Like, I wouldn't immediately think about science as a way to get to sort of a social change issue. Sure. I, I think that it's helpful because when you move the conversation to science, you're pulling people away from some of their kind of default ways of thinking about an issue, which in especially in American society, but we see it in other countries, too. Um, tends to default to how do we get here, who's to blame, how can we rationalize outcomes that are different for people across, uh, across populations or communities by looking at what actions they took that led them to a different outcome. And if they had made different choices, they'd end up somewhere different. Um, but science can help bring us back to thinking about systems and policies by thinking about science as a system. I mean, science is less partisan. It's not completely nonpartisan because scientists are humans and therefore bring some subjectivities of their own to the work. But, um, but yeah, it's a way of pulling people out of their kind of default ways of thinking about an issue, which tends to be at a very local individualizing level and helps them instead think about process and systems in ways that we aren't always comfortable doing or used to doing when we're just, you know, every day encountering an issue or, or an event or, an, or a phenomenon. Yeah, I think, I think science, science alone doesn't tell us why an issue is important, what's at stake, why it matters at a social level. So I think even policymakers need to have 
that issue of the science framed in a way that actually tells them why it matters to them, why it matters to their constituents, why it matters to society at large. Um, and I think framing can play a big role in, in helping that process happen. Um, Jen, so you mentioned the sort of public's default ways of thinking. Um, if people have been listening to this podcast in order, um, they would know that you're talking about cultural models. So I'd love to shift a little bit to what are some of the default ways of thinking that members of the public have about children, sort of early development, the role that science plays in all of that? So cultural models are these shared implicit ways of thinking that we have available to us and shape the way that we engage with information. Um, and so they're a, a pretty reliable set of cultural models that seem to crop up in almost every early childhood or youth related project that we work on. So one of the really big ones is this cultural model of the family bubble, uh, which is the notion that parents are essentially all that matters for a child's development, that the influences on and the responsibility for a child's development rests solely within the family. Um, and you can imagine that that makes it really difficult for advocates and, and, to commu and communicators to really foreground the role of policies and systems in affecting child outcomes. Um, another one is this cultural model of, of mentalism, or what we sometimes call individualism, which is a really dominant way of thinking that cuts across all different kinds of issues that we work on and is really sort of powerful and dominant in American culture. But when applied to children, it's this idea that no adversity is too difficult to overcome, no challenge is too great. Any challenge in life can be overcome by exercising the right amount of grit and determination and willpower and, and self-discipline ultimately. And this, again, shuts down productive thinking about the role of environments and systems. Um, and the, the final one that I think is, is worth noting is this idea of damage done is damage done. So when people think about the, the kinds of impacts that different types of early adversity has on kids, they, they typically think about it in a very deterministic, fatalistic way, which is that these, these experiences leave scars that really cannot be erased. Um, and of course, that, that shuts down, again, productive thinking about how different types of interventions and services can help mitigate against those, those um, early, early challenges. Um, does the research tell you why people tend to think this way? Because it seems sort of at odds if we imagine and I sort of call it like the Pinterest culture where childhood needs to be sort of created and imaginative, whether it's in the, of their own making or parents are doing it. So you have this one idea that children should be nurtured and cared for and they are most precious everything and they are the future, et cetera, et cetera. But then at the same time, we're seeing in the research that children are going to go through things and that's just a fact of life. Like where, why do we think that way? And also where, do we sort of draw the line? Like how much, like what's the point of too, enough, I guess, adversity to too much? One thing I did mention actually is that people can toggle back and forth between seemingly contradictory ways of thinking. Uh -huh. So on the one hand, you have this damage done is damage done mindset, which is that really early experiences leave, leave these permanent effects. On the other hand, there's this other type of really dominant way of thinking in American culture, which is the idea that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So in fact, different types of life challenges are character building. They build grit and drive. Um, and these seem like two contradictory opposing ways of thinking. And people do in fact go back and forth between them with some regularity. So I think that the takeaway for me is that people have often complicated ways of understanding the role of stress and life challenges. Um, and it's about cueing the ones that you think about as being more productive. Um, and as, as I think we'll go on to discuss, there are 
different strategies that we have to do that in, in a more productive way. Hearing you say that um, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I don't know why this popped in my head, but just makes me think of like every superhero or villain's like origin story and wondering if maybe we should switch to like a superhero like naming mechanism for that model. Like your child might be in a vat of like toxic waste and come out as some kind of amazing flying invisible <laughs> i don't know I'll, I'll write that down for list of frames yeah. to test next time share that with yeah. the research team okay. in the sandbox <laughs> um and so we so cultural models is sort of in the name that we would imagine it varies by culture and we've done this ecd research all over the world um it seems so what are some different models that you've seen in other countries yeah well we've had the luxury and the benefit of having done this work in you know australia and canada the US, um, as well as as well as others, so I think we do get a good cross cultural perspective on these things. I think one thing that's really interesting to me, um, partly because I'm from the UK, and so it's interesting to to reflect on the cultural differences. <laughs> Apparently, I wouldn't yeah. have guessed that. Yeah, he uh, only started talking this way for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, can I'm can we pause so I can get a new accent too? I need to practice. Um, so I think one of the big cultural differences between a country like the UK, where I'm from, and the US, is how people think about attributing responsibility to government in different ways. So in the US, which is, I guess, on one side of the continuum, you have this understanding that um, the, like the, the family is a sovereign decision-making unit, and any kind of government intervention is a threat or an incursion into that familial domain, which, again, you can imagine as being not not serving the interests of advocates who want to push for changes at the policy level. On the other hand, in the UK, you have this slightly, well, quite different perspective, which is acceptance, I think, um, of the role of government in family life. So the idea that government should and does uh, serve an important role in um, supporting the development of children. And I think this is also true of Australia, where we've done similar types of work. Um, and so that that is less of, a, of an uphill climb, I think, when it comes to messaging and framing, because you already have this bedrock of, of public understanding of the role of government as having an important role to play. One of the interesting things I've seen in our international work is how, as in the U.S., um, people tend not to think of very young children when you say early childhood development. So even in... Um, in Kenya and Bangladesh, like wherever we've done this work, one of the models that we find time and time again is what we call the aging up model, in which you talk about early childhood development with people and they immediately go to school age children. So at least kindergarten age. And that seems to be across the board. And, and we've speculated on the reasons for that. And, and one is the word childhood itself, that in language, we tend not to think about children like the word children associate we, we tend not to associate that with very young children we think of babies or toddlers and then in other countries where we've done research they have specific terms for different age children but then we have this field that's adopted the the name early childhood development and that gets translated uh literally often into other languages too and it's so the field's name itself is really confusing to people if you're trying to talk with folks about what happens from before birth up until the school age years, uh, maybe early childhood development is not the best term for that whole process, but it's the one that we have. It's just, it's embedded in the way we talk about um, 
about the issues. So we find time and time again that in talking about the thing, people are looking at older kids or thinking about older kids. And so one of our challenges is to help people understand that when we say early, we really mean early and what that means and why it matters. Because people are used to thinking about the school years as being the place where kids start to really develop and, and come into their own and become, you know, grow into adulthood. Um, and whatever happens in those earliest years isn't really all that important because they don't remember it anyway. Uh, so it's a, it's, that's a big challenge in talking about early childhood development, just getting people to think about the fact that babies can communicate or that something is happening very, very early in life that has real consequences for much later in life. Uh, it's like one of those issues where I guess, like I said, I, you know, I hadn't really given much thought yeah. to early childhood development until I got here, but it really is an interesting thing. It, it, human development generally, where we're sort of building the plane while we're flying it. And it's hard to help people get that right. That babies from the very beginning are their their life outcomes are being built by everything around them. And also they're busy operating uh, at the same time, right? So that the mayor may not have been an oblique reference to air traffic control, <laughs> a metaphor for executive function. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that I think many members of the public don't think that young kids have complex mental lives. Yeah, they that's see right. Oh, that's of, such a beautiful statement, complex mental lives. It's, it's so much more eloquent than me. That's what you get when <laughs> like, you put someone British in the room. <laughs> they seem like these like sleeping, eating, pooping things. That, yeah. like, that's, that's all they do. That's the kind of function. Um, so I think getting over that hurdle and helping them realize that there's a lot going on underneath the hood to, to mix to mix metaphors. Do we have a car <laughs> metaphor for babies? <laughs> Not yet, but maybe in yeah, our next project. Yeah. For sure. Um, so I'm curious, how do you re redirect people's thinking around that? Around aging up? Well, just I think all of the above, like one seeing what it means for like children to be developing that it's not just school age, but we're talking about babies actually having, what did you say, a complex mental function. Um, how do you shift people towards that level of thinking? Well, one of the tools we developed was the brain architecture metaphor for helping people understand that what happens in the earliest years of life really does have repercussions throughout or implications for um, people's lives over the long haul. And the metaphor works by helping people attach what they know about building houses to what they may not know about how children's brains begin to develop in the very earliest stages. So everyone gets, even if they've never built a house before, that the foundation is what everything else rests on. And it's important to have a strong foundation in order to build the rest of the house that you either dig a basement or you pour a concrete slab, but that, but that thing happens first before you can do anything else. And people understand that a cracked foundation is a significant problem and it's one that can be fixed, but it's really expensive to do that. It can be complicated to do that. It's better to just have a strong, sturdy foundation from the beginning. And so you can take all of those things that we know just because the idea of a house is so right. common and widespread and attach it to our lifespan and the idea that what happens in those very earliest years, that foundation sets the course for the rest of the, of the building process. Um, so that metaphor has now traveled pretty much around the world and we've tested it in, I think every early childhood development project we've done something like eight or nine countries now. And it works like a charm. <laughs> 
which is a sign of a good <laughs> metaphor, right? If 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 it yeah. if if it works cross culturally, then there's right. something really um, easily workable about that that idea of a of a, of a building and a house and a foundation. Yeah, and it's such a universal metaphor, housing. Yeah. Even though housing can look different, all and does look different all around the world, from place to place to place, it's still a universal concept. So it works really, really well. Um, so why is telling a brain story a strategy for ECD? It really helps pull people away from their assumptions about individuals or families. Dan was talking earlier about that idea of the family bubble and people's tendency to focus when talking about kids and how they turn out on families. Uh, but if you talk about brains, just like houses, brains are a universal concept. We all have one. There's something kind of mysterious about them to even to those who you know, study them. Uh, so, so that the ability to move people away from thinking about individuals, which allows them to rationalize difference by blaming it on the individuals mm -hmm. and instead move it to the realm of the brain immediately introduces a different way of thinking that there are, there are processes that happen in the brain but we don't understand them neuroscience is complicated there's stuff happening in there that's just foreign to most of us or unfamiliar and if you can get people thinking about that um, you can start helping them see the brain as a complicated machine or system whose mechanisms and, and operation can change according to what inputs are there, what environmental conditions are like. We can talk about how the brain can develop in different ways according to its responses to different uh, stimuli from the environment and so on. So it's just a, it's just a really different way of helping people engage with the idea of development. It's putting the focus on biology instead of things that are a lot less tangible, like your personality or uh, your choices or your sense of ambition or the kinds of things that we otherwise yeah. default to. And also I'm curious about, so when you're saying the individual, I'm also thinking about like the individual as in the person, but also the individual in the sense of like the family. So to your point, Dan, about family bubble, um, using this metaphor or telling a brain story, quote unquote, does that enable people to sort of expand their thinking to how this might be a policy issue rather than just sort of what happens in the home is up to each individual family? Yeah. So if you can talk about a process that we all undergo and how that process is influenced by our environments, you open up the space for people to think about how we have some control as a society over what our environments look like and so we can we can then begin a conversation to talk about how what happens inside our heads is influenced by what's happening around us and how we can change what happens around us so that that can then have a better a better influence or a better effect on what's happening inside our brains um, so that so then if you can talk about environments now we can change that you can introduce the idea of policies and how social policy can can affect that. And I, I think that also the, the way that people typically compartmentalize health as a domain of, of development with learning and all you know the other kinds of cognitive and social emotional developmental changes that, that happen. I think that the brain story helps us connect those in a really tangible way. So it, it, it suggests that there is this kind of common biological mechanism that supports both the development of health 
um, and we know that from the science, but also connects it to things like memory and learning and um, the ability to regulate emotions. So I think it positions advocates to be able to tell a much more holistic, comprehensive story about development that doesn't just focus on one slice, but actually connects across all the different domains that, that one might care about. And so, Jim, you mentioned sort of environments. Having this perspective where I guess using your brain story invites discussions around other policy issues that you might not immediately think about as something related to childhood. So, for example, we saw recently that we used this perspective in talking about um, family separation at the border. So we can have a conversation about immigration, but I think most immediately you don't see that or we don't see that as an ECD story or a brain development story. So how do we sort of use these metaphors, and we'll get into toxic stress in a little bit, but like how do we use these metaphors to tell a larger story about immigration? The link between early childhood development and and immigration policy uh, is helping, it, it can help people understand that there are long-term consequences for social policy and that it's not an immediate question only of who's here and why are they here and what are they doing, but it has long-term consequences for everything from individuals' health, kids coming here who are traumatized by having um, the experiences they're having through family separation at the border, and also long-term consequences on our society. What will we look like 20 years from now? What will our workforce look like? Will we have enough people here for our workforce? And so telling that story to say what we do now, it's not just a matter of convenience for those of us living in this moment right now. It's also a matter of us making judgments that are going to have long-term effects on our society, perhaps even well beyond what we can predict. Uh, if you can imagine willfully choosing to cause untold harm to thousands of children who will then potentially grow up in this society or in another country, unable to have the kinds of positive life outcomes they could have had had they not had that trauma visited upon them by our social policy years earlier in, in, in this moment in life when everything is so important um, in terms of their brain development. At this moment when, when their brains are developing so rapidly and those environmental conditions have such an enormous impact on, on how they are now, but how they will be in the future too. I think that's a kind of story that people aren't used to thinking about. It's a new way of approaching an issue of policy that we're, you know, to, to help people understand that we're, whatever we do today, whatever a course of action today is, can have consequences 30, 40, 80 years down the line. And, and, and it goes beyond immigration too. I and mean, I think almost every issue that we work on has some dimension that affects children, whether it's housing and the need for healthy housing, whether it's poverty and the effects of poverty on young people, whether it's the justice system and how policies that govern um, how we incarcerate you know, parents affect kids and their development. I think it is a really useful entry point into speaking about so many different issues that have great importance for us as, as a society. I think that the, the value of telling a science-based story is that it pulls people out of partisanship. So, so many issues get politicized that maybe really shouldn't be. I mean, should it really be a political issue that we should 
make sure kids don't go to bed hungry in this country, but somehow it's been politicized. But science, even though it's also not completely objective, because like everything else, it's related to human beings. Human beings are doing the science. It is the most objective way we have of thinking about the world and how it gets shaped and how it gets produced and reproduced. And so telling that story can pull us back from partisan fighting, from ideology, and help us really think more concretely about just knowledge, right? And what exactly is happening and what are the consequences if we take this course of action versus that course of action. So if you were to, I'm trying to think, like do a Google search on the phrase toxic stress, you'll see it come up. Um, when talking about family separation, you might see it come up in talking about sort of adverse childhood experiences. You might even see it in talking about issues that adults might have. Um, can we, and toxic stress is a part of the sort of brain story and came out of the research that we've done on early childhood development. Jen, can you sort of explain to us what toxic stress means? I can try. <laughs> so when neuroscientists and and early childhood development experts were trying to find a way to communicate to the public the adverse effects of negative environmental conditions on children's development years ago. They worked with frameworks to figure out the best way to explain some of those concepts. So for example, researchers will use a term called allostatic load, which is the amount of trauma a developing brain can bear before its biology is actually affected uh, by by that trauma, before the brain begins to be rewired in order to respond to those external stressors, which are ongoing and chronic uh, kinds of trauma. So we needed a way to help people understand that stress in the very earliest years of life can lead to biological changes that have long-term consequences for children's brains and life outcomes. But one of the problems that our research team encountered in helping translate that is is a very strongly held opinion across the American population that stress is actually good for you. That stress, uh, you know, does the body good. What you said earlier, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, that that there are ways in which stress is a good thing. And so we needed to find a way to help people understand that that there's a little bit of truth to that, that some kinds of stress can be useful, can be helpful, uh, but there, but we were talking about a very specific kind of stress, that chronic ongoing abuse or neglect or malnutrition or things like that. Uh, so we tested a taxonomy of stress to help people understand that there are different kinds of stress. So. Uh, we talk about positive stress. So maybe you are one and you need to learn how to walk and that is a kind of stress that you experience. But the outcome of going through that stress is is a net positive for your development. And then we talk about tolerable stress, which is a, a trauma that a child might experience, uh, but that is that can be buffered by loving, consistent caregiving relationships to m- move you through that a moment in time. So maybe the death of a caregiver, something like that would be tolerable stress. It's it's finite. It might have long lasting implications for you, but as long as you're surrounded by 
uh, love and consistent care and, and strong, healthy relationships with other adults, you can move through that and not have, you know, long-term, long-term damage done, I guess. Uh, and then finally, there's toxic stress and the idea that th this is really poisonous to your development. It's something that, uh, that in, in talking about toxic stress, we're talking about that long lasting, unrelenting, unmitigated trauma. So it works in part by helping people understand that yes, there are different kinds of stress. When you put that word toxic in front of the word stress, people understand toxic to mean poisonous, right. really bad, serious consequences. The researchers we worked with initially were not super excited about the term toxic stress because toxicity in the medical realm means something different and very specific. Um, so we had to convince them that their jargon like use of toxicity is really different from how the public understands toxic, which is equivalent to just really bad poisonous stuff. Um, so it helps people understand that there, there are different kinds of stress and, and the, the kind we really need to avoid in kids is, is toxic stress because of its long-term implications. And just to add on to one thing you said, I think, I think about toxic stress as being as much of a metaphor about relationships as it is about stress itself, because what distinguishes stress that is that is toxic from tolerable is really the presence or absence of having supportive relationships mm. and so one of the core themes i think across all of our work on early childhood has just been the, the centrality of having really positive supportive relationships with caregivers and other adults that helps mitigate and buffer against the effects of challenges that kids might experience um, so i think i think in addition to creating a taxonomy of stress it really foregrounds how important relationships are when you have that story when you can talk about toxic stress, then it can open people's minds up to thinking about all the different kinds of relationships that children might have. So you can use that to make a case for things like really strong quality uh, Head Start programs or early learning programs. You can make that case then for um, strong SNAP benefits. So kids don't experience malnutrition and their, and, and their parents don't either. You can make the case for lots of supportive programs that are, um, for example, multi-generational approaches to alleviating poverty, um, because when you're, especially in the context of relationships, it helps people understand how by helping families and helping parents or primary caregivers, you help children too. There's a tendency to think, well, I'm not going to help adults because they should have known better, I, right? They've made their choices, right. but I will, I'll support helping kids, which isn't the answer overall when we need we need approaches that tackle things like poverty which is a leading stressor in people's lives um, from many angles and that help everybody in a particular family unit or in a community to to get what they need regardless of what age they are I'm Nat Kendall-Taylor, CEO of the Frameworks Institute, and I'm really excited to be here today with two longtime friends and colleagues, Judy Cameron and Pat Levitt. And I just want to say from the beginning that this issue of early childhood development is one that I have been working on since my third day at Frameworks 12 years ago. And it's really that long-term process of uh, changing communications based on evidence, changing the public discussion, shifting public thinking, 
and changing the policy context that I want to talk with you both about today. And with that, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourselves, maybe Judy, you can go first and then, and then Pat second. Just tell us who you are, where you're from, what you do. Yeah, I'm a professor of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh. And if I interpret you right, I think you just gave us credit for your early brain experience that helped shape you. Um, I'm a basic neuroscientist. I've worked with non-human primates throughout my career studying brain development. But I think in large part, as a result of having talked with all of the, the um, council, with you, with Pat, um, for many years about this, over the last five years, we have spent a lot of time transitioning into working with young children in community settings and really trying to understand brain development in that context. Great. Thank you, Judy. Pat, over to you. Hi, I'm Pat Levitt. I'm a professor of pediatrics at uh, Keck School of Medicine of University of Southern California. And I'm also the chief scientific officer at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. I'm a developmental neuroscientist by training, basic scientists like Judy. And somewhere along the line, um, in a moment of weakness, I agree to to collaborate with somebody on doing some work in uh, species other than rodents, and that would be humans and children. And so it started with um, studies in neurodevelopmental disorders, autism specifically, and understanding the complexity of both their their brain-based uh, challenges and their their medical challenges. <clears throat> and and because of my work with counsel and then recognizing, and we'll, we'll get into this, how critically important the communication is and, and raise lots of issues about the science that we know, but a lot about the science that we don't know. Um, we started working on projects that had to do with understanding how early adversity uh, impacts the developing child across the, the lifespan. Uh, so I'm going to start by rewinding. I'm going to go back in time and go back to a time before the council was the council uh, and way back into the 90s here, which was dubbed, as you all know very well, the, the decade of the brain. Uh, and part of the idea of the decade was, of the brain was to try to enhance public awareness of the importance of the brain uh, and the processes by which it develops. And I'd like you to go back to your um, your science and your experience before the council, uh, before Neurons to Neighborhoods. And just tell us a little bit about uh, some experiences, your kind of initial experiences trying to communicate about the science that you were doing at the time to people who were not in, in your fields. So what I remember about the 1990s was that I was totally excited to be asked to be part of um, the MacArthur Foundation's network on effects of early experiences on brain development. I was just thrilled. The MacArthur Network um, brought together interdisciplinary people from all sorts of scientific walks of life. And we were going to tackle exactly how does early experience matter to brain development, an area that um, I was really excited about and in the midst of studying. And the first year of meetings were a little horrifying because you had all these experts in the room from different disciplines, and we 
get really frustrated because we couldn't communicate with each other. We each had our own vocabulary. We each had a way of talking about brain development. And we would try our best, and you would just get blank looks around the room. At that point, we weren't trying to talk to the public. We were trying to talk to each other, and we couldn't even do that. So we made a huge uh, leap from having that kind of problem and realizing that if we were going to accomplish anything, we really were going to have to talk to each other and use a similar language and try to figure out how to communicate to now where we can talk to the public and the public understands what we're talking about. So I, <clears throat> I, I was in the MacArthur Network as, as well. Um, uh, I was thrilled because of the new opportunities for scientific interaction. But, but the honest truth is that I thought I knew how to communicate extremely well. <laughs> so, so I'll tell you a short story, which is true. I was at the University of Pittsburgh. Judy, I overlapped, and that's actually that's where I met Judy. I was a chair of the Department of Neurobiology, and and I get this call from somebody at Pitt in the School of Education who had helped Teresa Hines organize a meeting in downtown Pittsburgh on early child development, and they were short a speaker. They they needed somebody dropped out at the last minute. I never found out who that was. This is a true story. And they asked if I could come down the following day, 15 minutes, just give a primer on brain development, you know, um, informal, you know, a gr group of uh, policymakers and business leaders down at the William Penn Hotel. So I go down there uh, and, and I asked where uh, the meeting was and they said, oh, it's in the grand ballroom. That was the first clue that it wasn't as intimate as this person led to believe. So I walk in, there's like a thousand people in this room. It's a huge ballroom. And they uh, bring me up to the front and I meet Teresa Hines and I actually sat down next to her and somebody gave a talk and then it was my turn. And you had the little two by two slides. Remember those little two by two slides? <laughs> and so, so, so here's my strategy, Matt and Judy. It was like uh, shorter sentences, right? That's how I would win the audience over, just shorter sentences. Same diagrams I would use to teach medical students or graduate students. So I give my talk uh, and a very polite applause and I come sit down and Teresa Hine turns to me and she sort of put her hand on my knee and she goes, nice try. <laughs> nice try. So I went back to my office and, and sort of had to do this, which, which I have done for most of my life, this self-reflection about whether I'm <laughs> whether I'm actually accomplishing anything or not. And I realized that I sucked at communicating science to people who were not scientists, that whatever I felt I could do in communicating science of, of brain and brain development, which is what I was focusing on in my own research, um, that didn't translate very well. So I do remember in those MacArthur meetings, as Judy said, having these conversations about, you know, how do we communicate with each other? And then um, Jack Shonkoff was in that network and uh, there were issues raised about how we're we gonna talk about the experiments that we were designing as a group to the public, some of which we, we at the time may have been thought to be con controversial. So it was a process, I think, in that MacArthur network in terms of recognizing, individuals recognizing that there was a real problem here that, that we needed to to tackle 
And, and so that abject failure um, in the 90s actually generated uh, motivation for me to figure out how to actually do this. I think an important part of that next step was the founding of the National Scientific Council um, for the, on the developing child. And so can you can you talk a little bit about that group that you are both still currently part of and have been part of for, for some time now, kind of how it was how it came to be, uh, what was it in response to, what was it trying to do from the beginning? You know, the MacArthur Network was inter an interesting exercise that some of us, I, I, I didn't realize, I mean, I got invited to give a talk. There were a bunch of scientists who got invited to, to give talks. Chuck Nelson and uh, Bob Rose were the, were the co-chairs uh, that were basically forming this, this research network. And, and we were auditioning, which I didn't quite realize at the time huh? uh, and and so you know they selected us for our our our, our scientific brilliance and our humor I think uh, <laughs> that's wasn't a great joke but but they were selecting us for not just the science we were doing but how do we get along in the same sandbox I think Jack uh, because he was part of the network the research network and also doing the neurons to neighborhoods at the same time had this kind of bird's-eye view of individuals and how they got along and, and how they complemented each other. And, and so he, he, he didn't have to audition. He was, he was already seeing that he, it was playing out in, in the neurons to neighborhoods working group for the academies and it was playing out in the MacArthur network. And so he basically, you know, the motivation was his, the idea was his. And I think what he uh, tried to do is have both, essential representation of the science of child and brain development, because the focus was really on the brain at that time and not necessarily on the whole whole child. Uh, and uh, so, so selecting folks who were motivated to want to learn how to communicate better and, and who also seemed to have a moral compass about wanting to participate in a process without personal adulation or credit to really make a difference, because that was an important part of the Council that we were doing it as a group, um, and not for individual adulation. Which in science, that's you know, how many papers have I published? How many grants do I have? Right. And so this was a different exercise, and he needed to find the subgroups that were uh, willing to participate in that process. So I want to talk a little bit more about the council and its focus on communication. So from the beginning, that focus was really explicit. Uh, that was a big part in addition to the, the synthesis and distillation and engagement and argument around the science and key scientific principles, communicating science, uh, being able to take those key principles, as, as Jack says, that are ready for prime time and push them out into the, into the practice, into the policymaking and into the, into the public world was a, um, was a mandate, was a, was a really important, um, feature of the council. And so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about uh, why from the beginning the council had such a strong focus on communications and kind of what what was the problem that that focus on communications was an attempt to solve? I think that it was because we had struggled so much with it. I mean, at least from the MacArthur Foundation side, we had really struggled with it. And then when we were able to communicate with each other and we had some language to do that with, we really were able to design experiments 
and make a lot of progress in the field. We were able to translate the basic animal work that Pat and I were doing to how would you design an effective study with young children, which we did in the Budapest study that Nathan and Chuck Nelson were doing. And we were really successful. So having had that experience, it didn't take much for us to think, okay, communicating is the essential first ingredient. If we can't communicate, we can't do anything. And once you discover something like that, I think you want to keep going with it. You don't want to give it up. So it became a really central focus of the council. So that's a that's a great lead into the next question and the next set of questions, which I want to dig into talking a little bit more about kind of how have you seen this focus on communications and framing make a difference? What are the ways in which you as individuals or the, the council as a group have actually uh, in your focus, in its focus on communication, kind of closed or addressed that gap between what we know and what we do? And so to start off, just as kind of a warm up, I'd love to hear uh, a, a story that each of you have, kind of an impact story where you kind of started with this problem that you had sitting next to Teresa Hines in the ballroom in, in Pittsburgh, Pat, uh, and how that kind of changed, uh, has changed over time, or one particular opportunity that you've had to communicate where you actually got a different result, Pat and Judy, where you didn't get the nice try result, but you got the, wow, I get it, uh, and, and kind of what happened as a result. So I was giving a talk in Florida, in Tallahassee, to the Florida Chamber of Commerce. I was invited by Dave Lawrence, who is a former uh, editor and publisher of the Miami Herald and um, the Detroit Free Press. And he retired when he was in his 50s and was in, moved to, and he was in Florida because he was running the Miami Herald and had started the children's movement and, and was really doing a lot of work. He he actually, you know, drank the Kool-Aid of what council was doing and knew about us um, and what was going on in terms of communication. So he really felt strongly that you had to bring policymakers and business leaders together because policymakers get approached 100 times a day about the, the most important thing that they must focus on. And so how do they make choices? And I felt that business leaders would have a big impact if they also bought into this issue about why early matters so much in terms of investment. At the time in Florida, not so much investment in any of these things. And so the most important business leaders were in that room. Uh, Rick Scott, who was the governor at the time and was running for re-election, actually flew up from Palm Beach and, and came to the meeting. And, and, and Dave gave me a whopping 15 minutes, right? So there was a few talks beforehand, and I had 15 minutes to tell the core story of uh, brain and child development, uh, which I did. And then I, I literally got a standing ovation, right, including Rick Scott. Uh, and we tend to believe that people who, who are of certain political persuasions may be very conservative, sort of feel that all of this is really the responsibility of the family, has nothing to do with programs or communities, et cetera. So he spoke right after me. He got up and he said some wonderful things about what he had heard from, from me. And he told a story about why he knows early matters so much. And, and so um, he talked about his father leaving and, and there were some issues in the family. And so he was raised by a single mom. And uh, when he was like two or three years old, whatever it was, uh, it was so vivid in his mind that she gave him the golden book of the Bible 
uh, and it had this enormous impact on him. This is his story, right? And so however policymakers think about why early matters, as long as they recognize that early matters and that, in fact, relationships matter in the life of the child, which is essentially what he was describing, for, for him, he said, at that meeting, it was transformative. Um, he wrote me a nice note afterwards, and the business leaders in that room, serious business leaders in Florida and, and, and others, said there was a change in the attitude of the legislature and in the attitude of the responsibilities of business leaders to actually move Florida in a very different direction than it was going. So to me, that was like, oftentimes you give talks, and, and Judy and I have given a lot of talks. Uh, we've been to a lot of states. You don't get the feedback immediately, but in this case, it was really quite striking and, to be honest, quite unexpected. That's great. Thank you, Pat. I have you got one better than that, Judy? <laughs> oh, no, I have a really good story. I think you're going to like it. So my story is early in the council's life. I think it was probably 2004. We had a council meeting where Susan Bales came. And she spent a lot of time talking to us about the terminology serve and return to talk about parent-child interactions that were highly effective in um, promoting child development. And she strongly recommended we use the term serve and return. And I have to say, I was unbelievably skeptical. I, I liked Susan. We had already talked about brain architecture. I thought that was a great term. I thought, this can't be right. Serve and return, I don't even know what that means. Now, I don't play tennis, and it meant nothing to me. But she strongly suggested that we try using it. And the next week, I was going down to San Francisco to talk at a business leaders luncheon. There were a group of business leaders in the Bay Area in San Francisco who wanted to have an impact on the governor and family and child policies. And they wanted to know how to do that. So there was a two-hour luncheon organized. I was asked to come and speak for 10 minutes to explain the basics of child development and then they would figure out how to get the legislature to pay attention. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna try out this terminology, serve and return, but I was worried I would say serve and uh, uh, because it just didn't mean anything to me. So I wrote it on an index card and I never take notes with me to talk, but I put it on the podium so I would remember serve and return. And I managed to work it into my 10 minute talk and then the first surprise was that every question I got asked was about serve and return. I think they let me answer three questions all about serve and return. I sat down. There are three more speakers. And then there is a panel with four other people. Every single person on the stage after me used terminology serve and return so that by the time we got to the end they are wrapping up what were the big messages they said well dr cameron serve and return concept i'm thinking oh dr cameron was a doubter um, but i got on the phone on in the taxi on the way back um to the san francisco airport and called jack and said you know 
this framing really works. And I told him the story. So in two hours, I was completely convinced that framing was absolutely essential. So I'm interested as folks who have worked for at least 15 years uh, on science translation, on communicating for change, which is which is really, I think, what you what you do and what you have done so well. Um, what is your advice to others who are have been doing this work or who are getting into this work? Yeah, what would you say to someone who's trying to to use these tools that you all have used to create change? I actually teach a course on science communication. Um, and so I think about this a lot. And I think it is the opposite of what people expect you to say. So they think you're going to have some golden nuggets about how to communicate. And I have lots of advice on how to communicate, much of which I've learned from you. But I think the most critical thing is that you really need to listen. You really need to pay attention to how the person you're talking to and you're trying to communicate with is hearing you. And that requires very active listening and willingness to have them not reflect back what you're trying to get across, but willingness to hear how are they thinking about it and then shift how you're talking about it to try to get your point across. And so I think active listening is a much, much larger part of effective communication than I ever realized before. And something that people need to understand if they're really going to communicate well. Say that again. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't listening. <laughs> Just kidding. It was brilliant. Jim. As usual. <laughs> ah, brilliant. Uh, so I would say know what you know and know what you don't know. That's really important. And know the difference between what you're trying to accomplish in if if it's if it's policy influencing let the let the science speak you know you have to figure out how to communicate that with the help of understanding all of those tools and these concepts that we've talked about people thinking stories et cetera et cetera but that's different than advocacy and so I think in communicating in all these different really complex domains it's always complex when it involves humans because humans are complicated right. And so I think you have to understand what you're trying to accomplish and stick to that. And I would have to say one of the things that we didn't talk about, but I think is really important maybe to end with is that there was a conscious decision, a conversation that occurred about what we were going to do and what we weren't going to do as members of council. We were not advocating for specific positions we were trying to use the science and communicating that science to allow those who are in position to make decisions use that. That's We wanted them to use the information. Um, that was our advocacy, really, was to you use the information. This is what the science says. And I can tell you that national organizations, that are, the society that Judy and I belong to, Society for Neuroscience, and this is true for a lot of them, they're they're advocates. They're they're not communicating science in the way that we have been talking about it. 
And the fact that the council members all agreed that we weren't going to be advocates, we didn't want to be viewed as advocates, we wanted to be viewed as honest brokers, and, and so that people could believe that we're communicating this, this is what the science says. You can use it, not use it, you can believe it or not believe it, but that doesn't change the fact that this is what the science says. And so I think that was, that's a really important component of why the council has had uh, some success and why those who started back in 2003, many of us are still there. Yeah, I think that's a, a fantastic point to end on, kind of the importance of being really explicit about the role that you are taking in the communication and discourse process. Are you uh, an honest broker of the science? Are you an advocate, an activist? Um, taking positions and arguing, uh, proposing, advancing solutions. I think that's a, a super important distinction. And I agree. I think that, that is part of why the council has been successful. The clarity uh, of that position and the continued commitment to it um, has been really commendable over, over a number of years. So, so with that, I just want to thank both of you very, very much for your time here today, um, for your for your. Uh, stories and your humor, <laughs> always humor, uh, and for spending some time with us to help us think about how framing is such a, a key part, but only one part of a larger process of, of, of making change on the important issues that we, that we are facing and of the power of the science of early childhood to inform a lot of those issues in really rich and important ways. So just thank you very much for being uh, part of this conversation. It was a pleasure having this conversation with you all. And I'll see you at the council meeting in December. Frame on. If you're curious about what models exist for your issue, visit our research page at frameworksinstitute.org. And if you want to practice these tools in your own communications, check out Frameworks Academy, our online learning series. of Mind is produced by April Callen and recorded, edited, and co-produced by Cameron Lopez. Thank you to our guests, fellow staff, and of course our partners over the last 20 years who've made this work possible. Frame on!